Hello, I'm Richard Lee. This podcast is sponsored by Squarespace. You can find out how they can help you build your own website at squarespace.com. The Guardian. I want to take tea with the Tories, and when it's getting late, I'll send those hoary bastards out to walk through my estate. Sorry, fellas, streetlights fucked. Cuts, I think. What rotten luck. Mind that dog shit. Human piss. Oh no, how can we live like this? On this week's Guardian Books podcast, we're investigating the intersection between poetry, politics and performance with two spoken word stars who are redefining the relationship between stage and page. For Holly McNish, the personal is political, as she discovers when she confronts the contradictions which surround the act of breastfeeding. In this country of billboards covered in tits and family newsagent magazines full of it, W8 Smith top shelves out for men, I'm getting embarrassed in case a small flash of flesh might offend. While Luke Wright's study of the fallout from Blair's cool Britannia fetches up maybe just a little bit too close to home. And Nick is a journalist, quite possibly a Guardian journalist. He has been a Guardian journalist. He has been a Guardian. He's he's seen the error of his ways. We found the poet and performer Luke Wright in the middle of a nationwide tour for his Edinburgh Fringe First award-winning show, What I Learned from Johnny Bevan. In it, he charts how Blair's Britain turned from dream to nightmare in an account of a friendship begun at university between the fresh-faced idealist Nick Burton and the whip-smart mercurial Johnny Bevan. When he joined Claire Armistead in the studio, he began with an excerpt from the poem's opening which takes us straight to the heart of our capital city. To London then, that fatted beast, of which the whole world comes to feast all private woe and public farce, where money twerks its oiled ass in gorgeous, fenced-off Georgian squares and starchy oligarchal lairs, where soaring steel-glass towers sit in ancient ghoulish plague-filled pits, where gap-toothed roads left by the blitz are soaked in years of pigeon shit, where heavy half-knots pissed in pubs toast Football clubs with swillish suds where fast suburban churches sigh their unchanged prayers at passes by where listless folk roam airless malls as slaves to airbrush siren calls and gobsmack flash their plastic cash and fill their hearts and lungs with ash where policy is signed and sealed and forced upon the shires and fields where money men spin even more from love of it and fear of war like bookie blokes they will their stocks as food bank queues ring grotty blocks where cut glass vowels meet glottal stops where half-cut kids and chicken shops dream dreams as false as talent shows these rebels wrapped in branded clothes this lunar race illuminated by their screens but never sated all within their reach at last but safe behind that steel lace glass it's so so close but out of touch it's not for you they know that much it's not for you it's not for you it's not for you to London then talk about raising the roof raising the roof in this the studio and raises the roof in a small room <laughs> sorry now this this is uh, half a play half a poem it's told in the first person the first person is Nick yeah. and Nick is a journalist quite possibly a Guardian journalist he has been a Guardian he has been a Guardian at some he's, point yes he's, he's now, seen the he's error now, of his ways he's now freelance I think but yeah he works at the Guardian yeah. and the, the premise is that he's been taken on a junket uh, sort of bells and whistles junket to a happening new scratch nightclub in a place in London which he once knew how much is, is Nick you this angry person who shouts on rooftops well, yeah, it's interesting that that beginning bit, that sort of shouty bit, because that's it's kind of Nick, but it's kind of also Johnny, who we see later on the play. It's kind of neither of it's sort of like a prelude. It's almost like the camera just panning down on the circuit. Um, Nick is me in so much that Nick is uh, uh, a guy from uh, rural, sleepy North Essex, and he arrives at university because we go back in time to, uni- to when he was at university. He arrives at university very naive and kind of wet behind the ears. So he's me in that respect. But I think Nick, Nick is also someone who's not really capable of making his own decisions. And I don't think I'm that person. I don't think I am anywhere that person. I think so that he diverges from me, which is what I needed to tell the story. Um, but things have happened to Nick that have happened to me, of course. I mean, that's the same with all writing, isn't it? We draw on our own experiences. And then 
the great thing is you can just jump off your own experiences when it no longer suits the story or, or the thing that you want to tell. So it's called What I Learned from Johnny Bevan, and as you say, it's a sort of mixture of the, the two voices. Mm. Is Johnny Bevan a composite character, or is he a particular person? He's very much a composite character, yeah. he's um, uh, The idea really stemmed from going to university and going to... I went to UEA, which is a it was a very white middle class university in, in Norwich. I, I came from Essex and I went not very far up, up the A140, and I went to UEA and I had a great time there. But it but it really was socially and, and culturally quite similar to where I, I'd come from. And I had one particularly good friend there who came from the kind of background that Johnny Bevan does, which is from a sort of council estate in East London. And yeah, he he was like a fish out of water there, and I, th- I think he both embraced that, but I think also found it very very difficult. And so being aware of that and thinking that relationship as, as time's gone on was, was one of the places where this piece came from. And also, I think for a lot of people, you go to university and for the first time in your for a lot of people, that you end up meeting people from different backgrounds. And that's a really, you know, it's a huge part of the university experience. And one of my favourite books is Brideshead Revisited. And I was thinking about how, you know, in, in that story, Charles Ryder falls for this uh, um, glamorous uh, young lord, Sebastian Flight. And I was thinking, actually, the 90s experience of that is is not a middle class obsession with the upper classes but quite the opposite like an, an obsession with with the working classes and the perceived sense of authenticity that gave people and that was a huge driving force behind Britpop you've got working class iconography selling records um, so I was thinking well, wouldn't it be interesting to sort of take that bride's head beginning and, and spin it the other way around, and then that felt like a more relevant story. And it's particularly relevant to the moment in history in which it's set, which is 1997, mm-hmm. just when Tony Blair wins the election. So yeah. everybody's hopes are so high, and it's mm. a point at which all these different classes of young people seem to come together in the realisation of some dream. Yeah, well, I think people were able to get behind Blair in a way that perhaps they wouldn't have done 10 years before, in the way that people didn't get behind Kinnett, because I think Labour had been out of power for so long that I think a lot of people put aside their reservations of Tony. But I was too young. I'm younger than the characters in this play. I'm, I'm 34, so really I was 15 when Blair came to power and it didn't really mean a great deal to me. I was entirely unpoliticised at that point. But I think a lot of people, yeah, let themselves be swept along with it because it was frankly better than the alternative. And actually the next piece I'm writing is set in 1987 and I want to examine some of that infighting that was going on on the left and I think a lot of that was put to one side because people just thought well you know we can't have over two decades of one party no, no matter where you stand the political spectrum I think there's there's a sense in Britain that we just couldn't you couldn't have that um, so yeah people allowed themselves to be swept up in the optimism and I think actually ultimately that was a real problem for Blair in the end because the expectation was so high I'm not saying that he didn't massively let us down in ways, but I think, you know, the, the expectation was massive in 1997. You say, let us down. What do you mean by us? Where do you stand in relation to politics? Are you a sort of activist as well as a, as a performer? Who, who um, I, w- I wish politics? I was more of an activist. I mean, I, I write an awful lot about politics and, and some of it can be quite soapboxy and... I, and I get involved in causes whenever I can. And I write poems and I and do gigs with. Um, I, I'm definitely, I'm definitely a, a creature of the left, and probably going m- more and more left wing as I get older. This play is is quite. It tries to be sort of uplifting and rabble rousing at the end, and, and the next piece I'm writing is definitely not going to be like that. It's very hard to be left wing when the whole world is moving in the other direction. Really, it's you know because you can't live by your principles. You can't. You kind of like you, you can't take part in modern life often and still live by those principles. It becomes harder and harder. So I don't know. I certainly haven't got any answers. But one of the nice things about writing this play is I could have two characters who both got it wrong, and they could have a massive argument, and, and the audience could find <laughs> can find their own, you know, their, their, their own answer somewhere in the middle because it's it's actually impossible to say what the, what the right answer is. I think, really. Well, let's move to Nick, who's the sort of charismatic centre. So he's a sort of ball of energy. He sort of unravels at the same time as he sort of ratchets up. He, um, and he, uh, Nick first encounters him at an open mic night at university for the Literary Society, and in comes Johnny, all sort of slopey and unknowable, yeah. and performs this poem. Will you read us the poem? Yeah, OK, before? so this is, yeah. Okay. Moving microphones. Um, so this is the poem that Nick sees Johnny performing, and a bit of context for this is that Nick's fallen in with a whole lot of lads at university, who are just like the lads he went to sixth form with, and he was hoping for so much more. And then one night, the football gets interrupted by the Litsock, the Literature Society, and on walks this guy, this sort of pacing, uh, sort of lupine kind of guy. And performs this poem. 
Now, I've been known to say some nasty things about the Tories. I've cast them as the villains in a slew of foul-mouthed stories. I've painted barrooms blue with lewd descriptions of their mums, lamented them, and caused a major ball ache with my puns. But older, wiser, richer now, I'm taken by their verve. And with my ratty council flat, I've so much to conserve. God bless you, Mr Lily, sir. A pittance just for me. I want to thank the lot of them and have them round for tea. Imagine them, all sipping coyly. Come on, Norman, use a doily. Mike, they lied. You ain't so oily. I want to take tea with the Tories. Flogging peasants? What a slog. Here, put your feet up on the dog. Howard, Heseltine, Hog. I want to take tea with the Tories. A wash of grey throughout my hovel. Stiffly perched, they slurp and gobble. Archer, bore us with your novel. I want to take tea with the Tories. Shoes off, Ken. Hate to ask, but you've trampled in some working class. Mr Miller, have a tart. I want to take tea with the Tories. Tarzan, darling, love the air. Virginia, part your bottom there. Mr Redwood, please don't stare. I want to take tea with the Tories. Ah, Master Haig, your mother too. Come in, come in. How do you do? I think we've got some juice for you. I want to take tea with the Tories. A slew of sleaze and union flags. Hair thick with fart and classes, gags, brown envelopes for party bags. I want to take tea with the Tories. I want to take tea with the Tories. And when it's getting late, I'll send those hoary bastards out to walk through my estate. Sorry, fellas, streetlights fucked. Cuts, I think. What rotten luck. Mind that dog shit. Human piss. Oh, no. How can we live like this? Careful now. Those lads have knives. Quick, the cars. Run for your lives. Oh, one of them stood on your bonnet. Should that have more wheels on it? Think it might need those to work. Oh, no way out. Ah, this might hurt. Sorry. Nothing I can do. Fancy that. You don't bleed blue. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Oh, what a mess. Thanks for coming. All the best. So that poem blows Nick away, basically, and is that he becomes immediately infatuated with this figure. What does it mean to you? Well, that poem, um, well, um, on a very practical level, when I first wrote what I learned from Johnny Bevan, at that moment I dropped in an existing poem that I had that was sort of not time-specific. And one of the bits of feedback I got from my friend Tim Clare, who's a novelist and poet, he said... Uh, you know, you're missing an opportunity here. You could write a real period piece. And I went, oh, that'd be a bit weird, wouldn't it? And he went, no, it's, it'd be great. You could write a poem. You could, you could have write a poem about the major administration. And so it, it was quite nice to write an unashamedly ranting, but sort of poem I haven't really written for a long time. And to write it about a period of time that I never would have got a chance to write about. And to do it from a point of view that I could never do it from, which is the point of view of Johnny, who's, who lives in a working class council estate, and not a poem I ever could have written. So it, it was, uh, I quite enjoyed putting on someone else's clothes to write a first person piece. It's really interesting, because when I read that, I thought, oh, this is like sort of vintage Phil Jupiter's. Yeah, it's like a, know, a, former, a previous generation of performance poet to yeah, you. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just like Porky the Poet or Attila the Stockbroker or perhaps not John Cooper Clarke. He was never as sort of dramatic as that. I mean, he didn't sort of take on different voices in the same way. But yeah, it, it's that, you know, Henry Normal. It's that kind, of, that kind of era of ranting poet, which, you know, is, you know, a group of poets that I have studied and, and learned about. You could read this as a bromance basically, couldn't yeah. you? It's about a love, albeit a platonic love, although there is a little bit of a moment, isn't there, when you wonder whether it's going to go over the edge of platonic love, and then um, it doesn't. Yeah, it's very much a love story between, between two men, a platonic love story. It's certainly a lot less homoerotic than Brideshead, but I wanted to sort of capture that feeling you have, and I've had that with various guys in my, in my formative years. There was, a, there was a guy at school that, you know, we didn't have other friends or girlfriends or anything like that. We had a really intense friendship. We'd spend like an hour on the phone every night, and it was utterly platonic but it was very intense because at last there was somebody out there that we understood each other and we had this rapport and all these you know I think those early teenage years didn't want to share with I know you know I feel I feel friendship really intensely I've, I've always had very close friends and lots of friends I've been very fortunate in that respect and and I think it's something that maybe isn't celebrated enough really and, and so yeah very much so that I wanted to make this a a relationship. And if you were coming over all lit critty about it, you mm. could say that actually the friendship also represents the tribes of labour coming together at that moment of youth and excitement and beginning, and then the relationship falls yeah. apart as labour fell apart. Yeah, I think you, you always, when you're talking about the political and the personal, you, you always want to try and draw as many parallels, and then people will inevitably draw more parallels, or then you'll notice parallels that you never even fully intended when you come to the end of it. And obviously that helps with the neatness of the piece and, and helps bundle everyone's, your thoughts up together. I think, I think it becomes a more sort of satisfying experience, the more sort of links you can draw. And there's another character in this, which is London. Yeah. It just feels like London is, that they are 
creatures of their space and that space changes and so and and as that space changes and the meaning of buildings changes and economics change mm. they are changed in a structural way by it yeah obviously we've got that whole section about I mean, half the play is not set in in london it's, it's set up university which is although it doesn't mention it in my mind it's norwich because that's where i went but yeah i think well i think london is like britain under a, a magnifying glass if you want to look at how britain has changed you know london is like almost a, a satire of how britain has changed and so you know the whole of Britain has become gentrified in different places but London excessively so like house prices are kind of out of control but in London excessively so but you know also the way that, that culturally our horizons have expanded throughout the country particularly so in London so obviously London's a really good place to sort of shine a light on that change because obviously throughout the play we, you know, we're covering sort of almost 20 years of time and so it's an obvious place to sort of focus on I think for me. Now you end it with uh, things can only get better <laughs> well, which was the Labour anthem that, yeah. that won Tony Blair the election, you yeah, could yeah, arguably yeah. say. At the end of the theme music for the show, because we've got com- commission music in the show written by Ian Katzkilkin from the band Art Brute. And at the end of that, yes, yeah, people are leaving the theatre. Things can only get better comes on, which given what we know of, of Labour and given issues that the, the piece discusses, it's ironic. But, you know, you, can, you can't help but sing along with that song, however much you might not want to. I think they, um, I was, it was saying they were, they were trying to convince Blair to go with Wake Up by the Boo Radleys. And they wouldn't have it, and they went for a D-ream, which was deeply uncool. As, as a child of the 90s, you know, it was deeply uncool. Who is coming to see this? Who will be reading it? Is it fellow travellers? I mean, do you have political designs on your on your readers or your audience? I, not really with this piece, no, I don't think so. I don't think they have political, because I don't think it offers any clear solution. I, I think it represents what I feel about things, in so much as that ultimately fighting for something is better than apathy. But at the same time, I think it's also sort of sympathetic to, to the way that we fall into apathetic patterns. I mean, I don't, you know, I think, you know, it's not like Johnny who sticks doggedly and, to his ideology comes out of it brilliantly he just makes a good point but also is is miserable as well so I don't think at any point it says this is the way you need to live but at the same time it doesn't sort of it's sympathetic to the way Nick's life has panned out but without being complimentary so I don't I don't think it I don't think I'm trying to make people think a particular thing but I'm trying to stir up their feelings towards the uh, troubles that the left has faced in the last 20 years and also make them think about their youth and nostalgia and about hope and optimism versus well, the opposite of that. And, and I guess people then draw their own conclusions from it. I, I think that's all I can do. Like if it was too didactic, it, w- it would fail. There's a, just a suggestion at the end when, when Nick goes and rediscovers yeah. Johnny that he's, he's sitting there in a sort of squat among mm. political tomes, all his reading. Yeah. But there is a suggestion that he might be almost moving towards UKIP because of yeah. his, because that's the way his working class identity is taken. Yeah, yeah. he's um, he's a he's a mishmash of ideas by that point. Because and I think that when you become unrooted from something, you know, I guess if you if you're a creature of the left and you have the Labour Party to invest all that in, then it all, all makes sense. But if you feel betrayed by an institution that all of the, your, your thoughts and ideas were placed in, if, if that's off the cards, then then what what do you do? You start casting around for things. And, and Johnny is, is is a mix of things. You know, he's he's reading Marx, but he's also you know he's sharing. UKIP memes as well and you know it's certainly you know UKIP has appealed to loads of former Labour voters uh, up on the left I mean four million people voted for UKIP and I think the thing is and I think one of the, the lazy things that we've done on the left is to sort of laugh at UKIP and dismiss them as, as all racists and say, oh, they're all just racists. And that worked for a while, but after a while you thought, well, four million people voted. That's hugely dismissive. I live in a little place called Bungie in, in the countryside, and it, it, does, it does feel that, like the national conversation doesn't really extend to us, and it is, is a lot of people in cities talking to each other. I'm not saying, well, I can't prove that, I'm just saying what it feels like sometimes. And so I do have sympathy, although I don't feel like I think Nigel Farage is is gross and I think for me the big thing about UKIP is that it would leave the most vulnerable people behind because they're so intent on you know quite extreme right-wing economic policies anyway but the point is I understand why it appeals to people especially people who feel like they haven't got a natural political home anymore and so and I think Johnny says in the play just well I'm just reading you know I'm not squeamish and I think there is a squeamishness amongst the sort of metropolitan, educated uh, left-wing people. You know, they feel squeamish. They just don't want to talk about you. It's yucky, you know, nationalism and all that. And Johnny's actually quite broad-minded and he will read all that stuff. But he's not necessarily getting it right. I think that's the good thing about Johnny is that he's not 
perfect. He does totally fall hook, line and sinker for Blair, you know, in 97, which, you know, any more experienced person on the left could have told you, well, look, you know, the, the signs there is he wasn't from the left of the party. So, you know, he wasn't, you know, he was talking about the third way and PFI and all that sort of stuff before they got elected. But Johnny was an 18 year old kid, you know, like in, he just wanted to believe in it. You know, We've been ranty and we've been political and we've gone through tragedy, mm. but it's also very funny. Can you give us a little bit that demonstrates the humour um, okay, um, hugs and tears and I'll be fines then I became the student. My room was compact, worn, frayed, but still a big improvement. I made myself a cup of tea, I chose a favourite tune, then I lay down on the narrow bed to seize the afternoon. For all my cringing at my dad, I'd sat and listened to the best friends you'll ever make. Well, that needed to be true. See, I'd had friends back in Colchester. I'd even kissed some girls, but nobody I'd ever met was really from my world. They were cars and football clubs or makeup in TV. I was books. I was music. I was poetry and lyrics scrawled in army bags and looking for a scene. And if that sounds pretentious, it is. I'm 18. And with my old life left behind, I couldn't wait to start on gin-soaked existential talk and afternoons of art. Yeah, that and probably get an earring. God, I was excited. I'd never have to fake support for Colchester United. My future friends were scarves and bikes, old books stacked on their racks or backy tins and band the bomb and vintage leather mats and turtlenecks and berets. Well, well, I wasn't really certain, but still the stage was set now. It was time to raise the curtain. Excellent. That it sends sort of shivers down my spine. I so recognise it, although it wasn't a beret in my in my mm. case. But there were sort of lots of shaggy scarves and things. Yeah, well, well that's, that's the thing. He's, he's quite realistic in so much as they might have long coats and, and have a band of bomb sticker. Although that's a little bit old fashioned, even by the nineties. But then the idea they might be wearing uh, berets and, and, and turtlenecks. You know, <laughs> it's just that he's got no idea. You know what, what a cultured person looks like, but he's he knows he's in search of them. As well as what I mentioned at the beginning that you won the Fringe first, you're also up for an acting award. And you think you're... Oh, no, you say I, won, you're, I won the acting Oh, you won award. the acting, won acting That's award. the stage the newspapers. The stage, uh, stage award for acting excellence. No, Was that a surprise is, to you? Well, yeah, utterly. Like, it's like it's still a bit... I mean, I don't, not that I don't, I'm grateful. I am hugely grateful. It's obviously lovely, but it's just... I, I'm, I'm a poet who reads his words out. And I, out of necessity, that's why I started doing it, because you couldn't make any money by publishing poems I started doing it and wanted to do as well so the idea that I, that I won an award for the performance is, is really really lovely then eight o'clock and back to Johnny's mum's we traced up 14 flights of pissy stairs with ashtray mouths and aching bandy legs our minds this quiet hum our hearts content that's not like mum she never leaves the lights on doors unlocked he called into the flat mum mum are you still here you all right? He threw his jacket down and called again. I came into the room behind him slowly. I saw the man first. Sat in the corner. Keith. He watched us from the semi-shadows. Johnny. He turned and saw him sat there. What the fuck? Johnny was shaking, lips curled, eyes welled up. She don't want you here! We don't want you! Then right on cue she came in. Things exploded. Me and Sandra thrust between the two in clouds of tears and insults. Keith was yelling, You think you know it all, eh? Don't you, Johnny? You think you got this whole world fucking sus? What would you know, boy? You don't know. This life will grind you down. You'll fuck it up. The same as me. The same as Johnny threw an ashtray. Flew right past Keith's left ear. Hit the wall a shock and smash a glass. Keith shot across the room. Left jab. Johnny's jaw. He split his lip wide open. Blood poured down his chin and neck. You fucking cunt! He screamed from a mist. I'll fucking kill you! Keith stood tall. as grisly puff of chest. As Sandra begged and prized the men apart. Her husband kicked the wall. Her son collapsed into a chair and wept. He looked so young. Grass eyes dull. His chin a claret mess. Nick, Nick, love. Sandra's voice was barely there. Nick, you'll have to go. Please, leave us. Please, just go. I swallowed hard. I couldn't fucking move. Johnny? Mate? Please, Johnny? Johnny? Come. But Johnny Bevan wouldn't look at me. He spat blood on the carpet. Nick, just go. 
So you're also, as well as this, you are a published poet. You have co- yeah. you've published a collection yeah, and I, pamphlets, which is what young poets do. Yeah, I did a couple of pamphlets. I did one pamphlet, which is, which is an epic poem, uh, which is very political. And then um, I did uh, another pamphlet before that, just, you know, half a collection. And then I did my full collection, 2013, uh, called Mondeo Man. And I've got another one, ready, which would have been out this year, but because this was, all of a sudden Johnny Bevan came along, so I thought we, we could delay in it for a year, so that's coming out next year. So what is the relationship of this script... I mean, it was sold as a script at the theatre. Is it a script well, or a poetry or a it's poetry a poem. collection? It's a, it's, a poem. A, it's a poem. I think it's technically, you know, in, in book industry terms, it's classified as, as poetry rather than, than as a script. Because I think sell it as a script means it's only, only half of something, whereas, whereas I, I kind of always, although I always knew it would become a show, I, I write very. I mean, you, you'll see in the book; it's all it's all written in you know blank verse or ballad meter. It's all very, very formal, and I do write with the page in mind because it helps me order my ideas. So I always wanted it to become a book. Yeah, it's a poem, but you can't say that. You can't say, "Come and watch my sixty-minute poem." No one will come, so you have to say, "Oh, it's a play." So you think that somebody who reads this—well, I have to say, I got caught on the tube and couldn't mm-hmm. actually make your performance last mm-hmm. night. And Susanna, our producer, did. Are we talking about a different? thing because I I've read it and she's seen it I well that's a really good question um I I don't know I can't I'm the last person who can answer that because for me it's something entirely different altogether but um I think the performance does bring something to it um it's quite an intense experience it gets quite shouty at the end when they're having an argument and I think that does stay with people but I don't know I mean for me poetry is a sonorous thing. It should sound good. When when I write poems, I'm saying them out loud an awful lot. And the way that I read poems on the page by the people, you know, I, I read them out loud to myself. It's just a good way of getting seats to yourself on trains. And um, you know, if I read Betjeman or, or Larkin or Plath or you know John Cooper Clark or you know what have you, I'm, I read those poems out loud to myself. So that's how I imagine somebody reading this collection sitting down, if not fully out loud, and sort of you know mumbling the words themselves. Because I think you need to. There's lots of different sounds in there. There's a, there's a tune to it, and so that's what I hope people get from it. I think people do like to take the book away and spend some time with it alone to, to kind of, you know, kind of make sense of it. But you know, it, it's very much linked to the performance, like like all my poetry is really. And very finally, which way are you going to head? You could head to the West End. You could head back to your bedroom to write more poetry. What is your next move? Well, I mean, if people want to hear more of Johnny Bevan in London, then we, we will gladly come and do another run. It's going to go all around the country. And we're, I'm working on a new piece set in 1987, a sort of sister piece, a companion piece, really different characters um, and dealing with different things, dealing with people in their in their 20s rather than sort of, you know, students and teenagers. Yeah, a show about belief, really. Um, so I'm going to work on that and hopefully take, you know, make a show out of that and make a book out of that and carry on doing poetry but I love performing it's great but I am really looking forward to having a bit of time off to get back to writing because I think there's only so much of a kick you can get out of performing I think you don't get the same kind of kick that you get out of having made something new that's always the, that's the most exciting part it's the hardest part of my job but it's the most exciting part what I learned from Johnny Bevan is published by Pend in the Margins with Luke Wright appearing live across the UK all through the summer. This Guardian podcast is supported by Squarespace. If you want to build a website, you have many options. But if you want to build it beautiful, there's only one. Squarespace gives you the power of world-class design, so you can do more than create a website. You can set yourself apart. See why some of the world's most influential people brands and businesses choose Squarespace. To start your free trial, visit squarespace.com forward slash guardian. When Holly McNish became pregnant, she found herself shocked at the politics of parenthood. Constructed out of diary entries and poems from her journal, Nobody Told Me explores the physicality of birth the loneliness of the carer and the networks of power which motherhood reveals. She began by reading from the collection, where we find her with the experience of childhood still fresh. 14th of March, one day old, 1am. Then visitors flock like flies, all eyes on the baby and me. I can't wee properly, and when I do I have to rinse with water in the shower because you're not allowed to use toilet paper for a while afterwards. But no one told me about that. Everyone says how well I look and I feel a bit sorry for him. 
Everyone makes their own tea. Someone even says I look thinner, which I find a bit strange. I have muslin cloths that we bought for the baby shoved down my pants because the hospital pads don't really do the job and no one told me that I would be bleeding, so I didn't have time to shop. No one told me I would be bleeding as if I would just guess. But I didn't guess. And I am bleeding. My breasts are leaking, I am feeding, I am crying, I am knackered. The day is full of guests. Then everything stops and everyone leaves and it's just him and me and the baby. And he needs to sleep so we're not both zombies. And I don't want to go to bed because it feels like a joke lying in a bed when you're blatantly not going to sleep. So I sit in the city and he kisses our heads and leaves. And from 2am to 6am baby, it's just you and me. As you abseil down my chest like a miniature rock climber. Hands grip tightly, push off from my shoulder blade cliffs. Your career from left to right, mind focused, eyes open, no waterproofs or harness, just a purple baby grow. You stop. Grunting for assistance, I see panic setting in Until quick fingers grope the spot And you fling your head across the sky To your chosen side and land Lips clamped and drink Then you fall asleep from the exertion My hungry extreme sports baby Abseil down me, anytime So Holly, that is one of the first poems you write After your baby is born yeah. And um, it has in it the title of this book Nobody <laughs> told me yeah, yeah. But it's such a mystery, isn't it? Because Everybody, the world is awash with advice about babies, but somehow the things that you need to know don't get said. Yeah, that's the thing that I, I found the strangest, to be honest. Like, everyone was busy telling me what sort of, I don't know, what sort of wallpaper to have in a nursery. or There was so much stuff to do with that kind of side of it. But yeah, all these things that just get overlooked, or people think are too gritty, I guess, to talk about. Like, I had my grand said, oh, but you don't want to know that. And, you know, you don't want to know that before, because it's not a nice thing to know if you're pregnant. I guess, that you're going to bleed or anything like that. So, yeah, I think people just didn't tell me the things that would have been the most, the most helpful maybe for me to be ready for or aware of. And there is a conspiracy among women, isn't there, not to scare off other women? Because actually, if one's been through it, there is part yeah. of the whole experience of having children that is you think, oh, my goodness, you'd never have done it if you'd known. Yeah, exactly. Time. But I don't think that's... Oh, I don't think it's true, is it? I mean, everyone knows... Well, everyone hopefully knows how babies are born so you can't expect it to be like a <laughs> lovely amazing pleasant experience which apparently for some people it has been but most people I've spoken to it hasn't I don't know sometimes I think it's still the old historic sort of ladylike side of things that you know ladies aren't meant to bleed or talk about bleeding or talk about poo or talk about anything and all this stuff is oh it's so relevant when you when you're pregnant or when you give birth or you become a mum it's it's grimy, it's gritty, like it's lovely as well, but there's a lot of, I don't know, bodily fluids and <laughs> things like that that no one seems to want to, want to tell you about. Or... You started this book, well, you started the writing that has gone into this book yeah. right at the very beginning when you, very, you discovered you were pregnant at Glastonbury in a tent. <laughs> well, on the way, on the way. I was on the way to Glastonbury Festival and I, um, I thought I was like a lot of people, I thought, I could have been pregnant. There were a few indications, mainly my boobs shooting up in size and period stopping, of course. But then I think I just needed to get away from everybody. So I was on my way to Glastonbury, first poetry gig. And then as soon as I got to King's Cross, I had to wait for about an hour to get another train. And I just thought, oh, like there's no one around me, no one that I know. This is probably the time to do it. I don't know why, I just felt like I kind of needed to be on my own. A lot of adverts I see for a pregnancy test, you're sort of, I don't know, just sat with your partner or with a friend or something like that, but I wasn't really in that sort of space, so I just wanted to be alone to do it. So you found out in a station, King's, on King's a Cross train. Toilets, yeah. King's Cross <laughs> yeah. Toilets, a romantic start to your <laughs> baby's life. One of my friends said, oh, there might have been a few other people doing it, you never, you never know. And and then for three days you kept it a secret, except for you told somebody called Dreadlock Alien. Yeah, who's a, a lovely, lovely guy who'd given me a, a lift of the last leg of the journey, basically, to Glastonbury. He hosts the Poetry and Words um, stage at Glastonbury. And yeah, I, because I thought I didn't, I didn't want to tell people not in person. I hated the idea of just saying something like that over the phone. It's not really what I imagined or what I would do. But then I thought, God, if something happens to me at, at Glastonbury and nobody knows. So yeah, I, I told him and he was making jokes about it <laughs> for three days. At what point did you actually realistically really start writing this down? When I started to tell other people, I think. Like when I really started to sort of share it with people and and kind of realise myself. Because it doesn't, it didn't really seem real at first. I guess a lot of people probably have that with any 
big news or, or death actually when somebody dies it doesn't feel real for a while I don't think so kind of similar with birth so yeah when I sort of got around the fact that I was pregnant and kind of sorted out how I felt about it a little bit more but then the writing there was also how I've always worked out how I'm feeling and thinking about stuff I've always just written poems about everything to try and get things right in my head I guess. So we should say that the structure of the book is that you have bits of prose and then you'll break into a poem and then you go back to you just you go you're constantly yeah, going just, backwards and forwards yeah just go between but it's always like it was I didn't intend like a few bits were written from memory but about 99% of the book was just the diaries that I'd written so if I've got the same <laughs> probably about three more of these books but not about motherhood I've got you know all my teenage diaries are the same there's got a bit of prose and they're all timed and <laughs> they're all dated and then they sort of slip into poems or some just poems I have no idea why but I've always just written diaries all my life since I was about seven and between bits of prose and bits of poetry so, so what made you think that this one should become a book and should be published just people asking me to so it wasn't it wasn't really that I wanted <laughs> I wanted all the grim details of my uh, thoughts and pregnancy and birth related in a book but it was more because I I was working full time as a poet and I was doing lots of gigs and it was a lot of the motherhood poems that I had read that were getting the most response not not definitely like the the best response or but there was just a lot of people saying oh I'm glad somebody said that and more times people said that I thought well maybe Maybe that's that's what I've got to do. Maybe if I'm the sort of person that's not that embarrassed to share these stories, but someone who is too embarrassed, it might, I don't know, make them feel like someone else is going through the same thing. I found it I found it quite lonely when I first had a baby and when I was pregnant, which I, I think a lot of people do, sort of lonely with your emotions or just lonely pushing a pram around the street sometimes. Um, so, yeah, every time I stood up at a gig and read a poem like the ones about breastfeeding or finding things hard or, or finding pregnancy hard and not feeling ecstatic about it all the time. Every time someone gave me some feedback or just said thanks, it made me think maybe I should just share more. Maybe I should just embarrass myself in front of <laughs> everyone you I know. You mentioned that word embarrassment several <laughs> yeah. times. So I think you, you've got to read the poem that, that has that name, which yeah, which right. which has led to you being mobbed by midwives in gigs, hasn't it? Yeah, when I left did. It I was on tour last year and it wasn't a, a tour of this book, it was another book. And um, one of the gigs on the whole tour, I didn't do that poem. And I got circled, literally a group of midwives circled me outside Leeds and um, said, you know the one that you've got to do, you better read it. <laughs> Just find it. 13th of September, six months old, 2.56pm. Embarrassed. I thought it was okay. I could understand the reasons. They said there might be a young child or a nervous man seeing this small piece of flesh that they weren't quite expecting, so I whispered and tiptoed with nervous discretion. But after six months of her life sat sitting on lids, as she sips on her milk, nostrils sniffing on shit, banging her head on toilet roll dispensers, I wonder whether these public loo feeds offend her. Because I'm getting tired of discretion and being polite. As my baby's first sips are drowned, drenched in shite, I spent the first feeding months of her beautiful life, feeling nervous and awkward and wanting everything right. Surrounded by family till I stepped out the house. It took me eight weeks to get the confidence to go into town. Now the comments around me cut like a knife as I rush into toilet cubicles, feeling nothing like nice. Because I'm giving her milk that's not in a bottle. Wishing the cocaine generation white powder would topple us, see pyramid sales pitches across our green globe and female breasts banned, unless they're out just for show. And the more I go out, the more I can't stand it. I walk into town, feel I'm surrounded by bandits, cause in this country of billboards covered in tits, and family newsagent magazines full of it. WH Smith top shelves out for men, why don't you complain about them then? In this country of billboards covered in tits, and family newsagent magazines full of it, WH Smith top shelves out for men, I'm getting embarrassed in case a small flash of flesh might offend. And I don't want to parade this, I'm not trying to make a show, but when I'm told I'd be better just staying at home, and when another mum I know is thrown off a bus, and another told to get out of a pub, and I'm sure the milkmakers love all this fuss, all the cussing and worrying looks of disgust as another mother turns from nipples to powder, 
ashamed, or embarrassed by comments around her and as I hold her head up and pull the cardi across, and she sips on the liquor made by everyone's God, I think for God's sake Jesus drank it. So did Siddhartha, Muhammad, and Moses, and both of their fathers, Ganesh, and Shiva, and Brigid, and Buddha, and I'm sure they weren't doing it, sniffing on piss as their mothers sat embarrassed on cold toilet lids in a country of billboards covered in tips. In a country of low-cut tops, cleavage and skin, in a country of cloth bags and recycling bins, and as I desperately try to take all of this in. I hold her head up. I can't get my head round. The anger towards us and not to the sounds of lorries, offloading formula milk, into countries where water runs dripping in filth. In towns where breasts are oases of life, now dried up in two-for-one offers enticed by labels and logos and gold standard rights claiming breast milk is healthier, powdered and white packaged and branded and sold at a price so that nothing is free in this money-fueled life which is fine if you need it or prefer to use bottles where water is clean and bacteria boiled but in towns where they drown in pollution and sewage bottled kids die and they knew that they'd do it in towns where pennies are savoured like sweets we're now paying for one thing that has always been free in towns empty of hospital beds babies die diarrhea fueled that breast milk would end so no more will i sit on these cold toilet lids no matter how embarrassed I feel as she sips. Because in this country of billboards, covered in tits, I think I should try to get used to this. Now that poem is classic Holly McNish, isn't it? In the way that, <laughs> in the way that you, you keep jumping from the personal to the political. And you are a very political poet, aren't you? Yeah, I think so. I didn't. I don't think I really realised that until I started reading out my poems to other people. I didn't, like, people would sort of label me that or, yeah, say that I was a feminist or yeah a political poet and I'd never said either of those things before I'd actually joined the poetry circuit I guess so yeah I do I think everything's connected though I get I get quite frustrated now with the amount of people I know that just or don't don't vote for whatever reason which I understand but um they don't really link their personal experiences with politics when I personally think most things are especially lots of my experiences with parenthood actually. And there are two forms of politics, aren't there? That one form is the cultural politics that leads to your grandmother feeling that she had to give you a wedding ring to put on your finger because she was worried that you would yeah. be ashamed about not being married and having a baby. And yeah, exactly. I think, uh, yeah, there was so much stuff. I, I love the fact that I've known both of my grandmas, actually. And one of them was 97, one of them turns 90 this year. And just being able to talk to them about their experience of motherhood and then my mum and then me and then seeing my daughter now at five and how unembarrassed she is about the things that I'm a bit more embarrassed about. My mum, a bit more still and my grand just, you know, would never talk about. I think it is such a shame. And actually when, when I was pregnant and feeling quite vulnerable and, yeah, we were going out to Dobie's garden centre and she asked me to put a ring on my finger, I found it really insulting at first and it was really jarring and then after sitting down talking to her about why you can totally understand it you know if, if if she puts herself in my position me walking out with a pregnant belly showing and no ring on my finger would have been obviously much more frowned upon picking up on the the breastfeeding thing which is still I mean really shockingly I had my babies 25 years ago and it was I think it might even have been better then yeah I feel like we uh... I hate all the stuff to do with breastfeeding now and I didn't think about it while I was in it really. I didn't read out the embarrassed poem until I think my daughter was about two and a half and I'd stopped feeding. So it's only only since I've stopped that I started reading out these poems and then going to midwifery conferences and going to like, lots of different conferences on, on feeding and realising I'm more frustrated now that I felt in any way bothered about it. I really get angry about it that... You know, and anything to do with it just makes me so insulted, really, that this is even a thing, that you go through so much as a mum and, and to be pregnant and give birth and all the bleeding and all the soreness and, and the tiredness and that actually feeding your baby. It shouldn't, it shouldn't be anything about it at all. Even, you know, the sort of arguments for discretion and, you know, covering with a cloth and, oh, no, I think breastfeeding is brilliant, but as long as you do it here or as long, like, there should be nothing. It should just not be an issue in any way. And I hate it. And I think, yeah, maybe it is worse now. My, my mum says the same thing. And actually, my grand kind of says the same thing. Like, she was made to go into a back room sometimes when family was there. But I know a lot of people that didn't want to feed 
And lots of people, obviously there's a lot of reasons why people don't want to feed, but a lot of people I know, it was a lot to do with confidence about your body. Because you are kind of, you know, displaying a tiny bit of a part of your body that you don't normally. And the only boobs we see anywhere really are kind of young, pert, sexualized, and Yeah, and sexualised. I've had quite a lot of people adamantly, you know, argue like it's ridiculous because this is what boobs are for and they're not sexual. Whereas I kind of think, yeah, that is absolutely biologically what they're for but they are also pretty sensitive and can be sexual but then you know every part of our body can be I don't get why boobs are such an issue you know I I eat and I snog people and I don't confuse those two I have smear tests and I have sex like don't confuse the two things so feeding your baby and a a man or whoever touching your nipples it's not the same you know every part of our body can be sexual and can be not sexual and can be caring we just I think we're so uppity in Britain about things like this, just about bodies in general. There's one little bit of this which is a sort of love song to midwives, and your mother was a nurse. Yeah, she is, still. So to the ca- yeah. the people who actually enable this transition to happen, of young yeah. women like you. I've just been astounded by who's actually helped me since I've been a mother or been pregnant. Seems to be a lot of females working a lot of overtime the midwives were amazing all all the midwives I had even the midwife I had that used to visit me when I was pregnant just repeatedly like it's in the book but she repeatedly used to tell me that I couldn't have Mr Whippy ice cream I just remember that vividly but that I it was I could have this other ice cream it's fine other ice creams are fine as if I don't know if I look like the sort of person that just really likes ice cream (laughs) but she was great and yeah it is it is a bit of a a love story to them and after I had a baby sort of the people that ran all the baby groups in my area and toddler groups they were mainly volunteers mainly retired women loads of sort of 70 80 year old women who were just making you a cup of tea at that local community center it was those were the kind of life-saving things I think those little pieces of voluntary work and caring and a lot of the women midwives and yeah, there were there were a few men, but it has mainly been... And, you know, grandmas as well, I think. They get overlooked <laughs> economically quite a lot. There is a shape to this. It's not just a sort of series of diary entries and poems. And the, there's a real shocker right at the beginning, which is when you tell your partner that you're pregnant. And I, I literally, my heart was in my mouth. Thinking, oh, my God, no, no. <laughs> well, yeah, I, actually, when I first was asked to publish all the diaries because I didn't ask it was going to just be poems and then my agent who's amazing she sort of said oh but you know the diaries are really interesting so maybe you should do them as well and I actually had started it on a poem called Banana Baby which is when I'm about five months pregnant and it was my partner that said why are you not putting the any entries before then I was like well because I mean (laughs) Do, I mean, do you want to know? Do people want to know this? Do we want to share this? And he was like, well, if the whole point is that it's an honest look at parenthood and motherhood and relationships, then you should be honest. So it wasn't actually my decision to put those. Yeah, the Which was, we haven't said shocker. what the great well, maybe they was. should read it, I don't know. <laughs> should you? That like telling people a cliffhanger in well, it's a, a spoiler on the very first page. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the spoiler is your relationship isn't at all certain. No, So no. you give him your announcement and he gives you his announcement and they don't marry up. Should we leave it like that? Yeah, except his is first, which his makes is first. a difference, I think. If it was the other way around, it might be harsher. <laughs> So part of what this book is, is you're you're all the time I'm reading it thinking, oh, are they living together? Is this relationship working? Are you being, you know, there is a sort of, you are on tenterhooks a bit through it. Yeah, I don't think I'd even thought about that because we just got on really well after a little one. So the baby brought you together? Yeah, well, maybe. I mean, I think it's just really about the honesty of it. I feel like there's... There's quite a lot of people that go through problems and just don't really talk to their partners about it. Whereas if, I think if most people were honest, then they'd probably maybe have this situation, but maybe just gulp it down and keep feelings to themselves more than I have in my life or more than we have in our relationship. So, yeah. Nevertheless, when she's two and a half, you do have this place where you say, today was a shock. Today I realised I've been writing down things about parenthood and not always actually talking to Dee about them. Yeah, it was was a shock to me because, (laughs) yeah, that was the bit. After I'd been away and he had this massive news to tell me and thought that I'd be totally 
traumatised by what he was going to tell me and was really worried that if he told me what happened while I'd been away that I wouldn't be able to go away to work anymore because I'd be so worried. And all it was is that she'd, like, poured a plate of spaghetti over the table when he'd taken her out to a cafe and that he'd got really angry. And that was it. I was like, why? That's not a big thing. Like, that happens to me all the time. <laughs> what are you talking about? And just the fact that he couldn't believe that and thought that I was a really calm person that, like, never got never got angry with my child. Like, I'm not really a person that shouts a lot. I never have been. And actually, the poetry is probably the reason for that because since I've been seven, all of my anger has come out onto the page rather than at people. So I guess instead of bottling things up, I've just written it down. I must have just carried on doing it because I was more shocked than him, I think. And he'd been so nervous about telling me this incident <laughs> where he'd got angry and he hadn't you know, done it. He hadn't even shouted. He just said, you know, I was so embarrassed and people looked at me, but I think because I was a father on my own with a child and maybe they thought I couldn't cope as a dad, which I think must be even worse pressure sometimes than if you're a mum with your child, really. And I sort of found it funny and then thought, oh, God. And I was flicking back through my diaries thinking, yeah, you're right, all of the incidents... Like, even when I went into town one day and a guy was really drunk opposite on the street and my daughter started having a tantrum and he started singing, you're not old enough to have a child, like, really loudly in the main street in Cambridge in front of everybody. And I was just sitting on the floor with my daughter screaming, I hate you, at me, and this guy, you know, screaming to me because it was one of the worst. It only lasted about seven minutes, I think. But I just must have just not told him. Or maybe we're more embarrassed about things like that than the sort of other gritty personal details because I thought, God, this, this is, you know, I've failed as a mum, like, this is an awful thing. Or because I was crying and I was embarrassed that I was crying because you're meant to find every <laughs> minute of motherhood amazing. Um, so, yeah, a lot of things like that, I realised at that point that I'd been writing it, writing it down and not telling him. And also, so you didn't read what you were writing down, did no. you? No, it was my diary. It. it was just my diary. Like, it wasn't... Yeah, he didn't read it. He, I read a few of the poems out, but no, no, nobody had read it at because all. Because what this gets, this, one of the things this book gets, is it gets that idea, the absolutely monumental stress that you go through in a sort of lightning spit, and then suddenly you're out the other side of it, and you, you know, you've just gone on to the next phase. Yeah. And that's what motherhood is in those early days, partly, isn't it? I recognise yeah, that. Yeah, I think so. And I'm, I'm really glad that I wrote stuff down, because actually, I, I, half of it, I didn't remember when I read back. I don't think I remember a lot about the first year of my daughter's life because I just remember being in such a tired haze and worrying about everything. And like It was quite repetitive and feeding and changing nappies and sleeping and then going to work and trying to get sleep. And it's not really the sort of state of mind where you do remember every minute detail. So I'm quite excited I wrote it down. And yeah, I was trying to work out where to stop the book, to be honest. Like at first it was going to stop when she was a year and then I thought, actually, I've written loads after that. Just going to preschool seemed like a good stopping point for this. Oh, it's such a poignant final line. Yeah, because it is like, oh my gosh, I can have two hours at first, but those two hours just seem amazing. Two hours that you can do something, maybe, not Mm. work, not not go and clean. I mean, part of this extreme stress is the fact that you can never not be reliable because your child's survival relies on it but other people can let you down and there's one particular scene where you're let down by a babysitter yeah which I think is a sort of brilliant little chamber piece yeah yeah yeah. I remember that was the first time that I was going to go out to go and see a poet called Polar Bear and um it was it's just a small thing for other people isn't it to be I don't know I think it was like 40 minutes late or something but just that meant that I'd you know, missed the show and missed a possible first two hours of doing something for myself. And, yeah, just sat and, and bought, a, <laughs> sat and bought a, bottle bought a bottle of wine and sat on the bench in the village where I lived and sobbed, I remember. And I remember thinking as well, you know, I know this is a tiny thing, but it seems absolutely massive because I just haven't done it. And you also seem a bit foolish sometimes, like getting up your hopes. I think that's what I found about, first of all, becoming a mum, that, It was brilliant, and it is brilliant, and it's so lovely as well. And you do have the most romantic moments and fall in love with this baby all the time. But the fact that I'd only seen that side of it, so every time I felt something different or did something different or wanted to cry or wanted to scream or, you know, didn't feel like I looked blooming when I was pregnant or people, you know, anything, when people commented on, oh, you look lovely, I thought, just just this guilt. I think the guilt is the the biggest thing was the biggest thing for me just feeling guilty if in any way I felt different from the sort of Hollywood view of parenthood or the magazine view of parenthood I guess 
it's the I say it a lot. I realise it's quite repetitive with that in my diaries. But the sort of white linen shirt, kind of slightly older, pretty, normally Caucasian, like long blonde hair, sitting very middle class, like all the baby catalogues are. There's always you've got a proper feeding chair and you know a lovely like white linen shirts on. And I just wish there would be some other sort of images of of motherhood that you get before you go into it, really, that doesn't make you feel like such a failure every time you slip away from that perfect vision. There's one big question about this book, and as there is with any memoir, is what you leave out, um, because you have a child in this. Yeah. And, um, and you don't name your child. No. A- at all in it. That's no. one big decision you've made. Yeah, that's mainly based on, like, that's less to do with motherhood stuff, but more to do with other poetry I've written, because I get quite a lot of um, hate male and quite a lot of um trolling on youtube and things like that and it's more to do with poetry to do with immigration and racism and and uh, the the breastfeeding one too actually i've got some weird hate mail for it to Um, explain why it's to do with immigration racism just the poems that i've put up online about immigration like i write quite a lot that was what i studied i did a um, master's in economics and development and i write a lot about immigration as well and i'm quite pro immigration so i get i've had people sort of threaten to come to gigs and beat me up to sort of show me how much they don't appreciate my stances on things like that and and also when I've talked about women like one poem I've got that just repeats the phrase I like being a woman and the amount of backlash just for saying positive things about women it's like I think it's because every time I say something about women a lot of people well they can not like it that's fine but the sort of guttural hate that I also get I think just comes from the assumption that anything pro-woman is anti-man and anything pro-immigration is like anti-indigenous or whatever that means so yeah so that was my main reason for not wanting to name my daughter I don't really have any pictures of her online or anything like that I also think it should be her choice, really. Like, I don't know how I'd feel if my mum was a poet who spoke a lot about sex and and, and me and, you know, lots of different things. Maybe she should choose when she's old enough whether she wants to have like an online presence or not I just think it's it's yeah her choice rather than mine whether she wants to be in it and I did take a few bits out like mainly it is everything and there were bits I took out about eight months ago I guess because I panicked I was like oh my god this is actually gonna be published in a book people (laughs) might actually read it okay well I don't want this and I don't want my grand to know this bit and I don't want my my mum to hear this bit and I don't want you know my dad to hear this bit and I started to panic and then um I think it was actually I was driving to a gig and I put on Miss Dynamite who I I really like and her stuff is so honest and it always made me feel much better when I used to listen to it a lot and I thought no no put it back in so then I put all the stuff back in that I'd sort of panicked about I think there are about three short paragraphs that I took out of the entire thing have your parents your family read it yet no my I think my brothers maybe halfway through my sister-in-law has read it um Dee's read it I think he's the only one in the family that's read the whole thing my gran actually last time I was in Glasgow about a month ago my gran read started to read it and then when everyone else was asleep, she said that she was crying too much. And so she can't read anymore. My mum said she wasn't sure she would want to. Um, she's more of a sort of Ted Hughes fan. But then she said she started reading some of it and, and enjoyed it. So, yeah, we'll see. My dad's quite desperate to read it. He's probably maybe the one that I'm most embarrassed. He's not in it very much. No, he's not all. in it very much. Um, I mean, not at all, really, is he? At the end, though. I oh, think, I suppose, I think yes. the Yeah, the granddad's... I know everyone's different, isn't it? But my dad, I didn't really realise until my daughter was about two that he pretty much was petrified of having her on his own. <laughs> so I was really annoyed at first, thinking, come on, pull your weight. What are you doing? Not that it's his job, but, you know, my mum was helping out so much and um, and Dee's mum was helping out so much and the granddads were kind of sitting back, not really doing much. Um, and I guess because of that point is quite a it's quite a split between what the woman and the man do when they're actually you know having a baby like the pregnancy and the birth and everything seeing that made me a bit angry and then I realized when she was about two that he was just petrified and had never changed a nappy or looked after a baby and was just really worried to do it so that's why yeah he starts coming in when she's a bit older a bit easier, as the woman in the family might say, but easier to look after. You're a performer and you've said you have big presence on YouTube. How different is a book to that? Yeah, it's really different. I, in a way, I prefer it 
really, because I've, like, more of my life, I've just been writing poems and writing diaries and writing and writing. I just love it. So it's a bit weird being called a performer, to be honest, because I only really started reading out my poems when I was about 26, and that was mainly because Dee forced me and said that I well, didn't force Dee's me. Dee's a DJ. But, um, MC. An MC. Yeah, so he, he thought that other people might want to hear them. And it still took me a good year of walking past like the Poetry Cafe before I went in. But then as soon as I started reading out the poems, they started getting asked to do more gigs. And a lot of those gigs were poetry slams. And then I won one of them and then got just branded like slam, slam poet, which I had no idea what it meant. But I just, I like when I perform on stage in my tour last year, I never recite the poems off by heart anymore because it makes me too nervous. I, I just read basically stand on stage and read them from a book. So um, I guess it might be a bit disappointing to think of me as a performance poet because there are some really good ones who are, you know, full of life and love that sort of stage presence and are very good with the audience interaction and, and things, whereas I, I just read the poems. And you're, you're friends with Kate Tempest, aren't you? Yeah. Who's the sort of big performance yeah, star amazing. of the last couple of years. Yeah, which who also, like, she's, I don't know how she does it with her memory, really. I did a, I supported her last year and she recited her entire book on stage without the book. But, you know, it's good to have people like that that you're friends with that you can just think that's amazing and I'll never do it that way. <laughs> so I just, you know, it's just different though, isn't it? Because she loves the music and, and if anyone asks me to do things with a, with a band ever, I want to run and hide. I've done one, there's a great night called Tung Fu in London and that has a, a backing band and you go on and they sort of follow you. So they're really, really amazing. I say that word all the time. I've realised that since reading this book. But they're brilliant. And I think I put that off for about two years and did it about two months ago. Yeah. So, so the, the future is book-shaped for you? I don't know, maybe a bit of both. Like I, lo- I love the live experience. It's just, I guess it's calling it I've started calling it a reading poetry reading rather than a poetry performance but it doesn't you know it doesn't matter I've got a book in my hand basically rather than not having a book in my hand I guess there's not that much difference so live and book shaped and audio shaped and video I just yeah try a bit of everything why not Nobody Told Me Poetry and Parenthood by Holly McNish is published by Little Brown thanks to her and Luke Wright Next week, we'll be causing all sorts of trouble as we examine literary taboos and the authors who are writing the unwritable. You can find us online or install us on your smartphone by searching for Guardian Books Podcast. Until then, from me, Richard Lee, and our producer, Susanna Tresillian, thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio.